City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, producing... Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is one of the nice stories about the theatre and New York. Uh, we have been doing these seminars for 22 years, and this is the 50th anniversary of the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards. And so it, it shows very clearly the continuity of theatre. It also shows the enormous amount of work that goes in to the theater. Our seminars are on the producers, the performers, the playwrights, the directors, the press agents, the unions and guilds, the people that work for and with the people that work in the theater. We are known for our Tony Awards and we are justly proud of them because this award was established in honor of Antoinette Perry a woman who believed in quality and training for the theater. And all of the programs that we do year-round reflect that. We also bring theater to hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers where those that are in, the, in these establishments cannot come out and go to the theater. But we bring that magic that only live theater can provide to them. We also help develop audiences we have a program called Introduction to Broadway, and it is exactly that. We bring high school students from the five boroughs of New York to this theater, to Broadway. For the first time, many of these students have come out of their neighborhoods. This is done in cooperation with the Board of Education and with the producers who have been most generous in making available to the American Theatre Wing tickets at a ridiculously low price, and we, in turn, turn them over to the schools. The unique part of this program is that each student pays for their ticket themselves. So they establish the habit, buying a ticket and going to the theater, which is very important. And the excitement in their eyes when a teacher offers tickets to a Broadway show is just wonderful to see. They might never have seen a Broadway show, but there is that magic in, in the words Broadway show, and so the hands shoot up and, and they come. And many times we're able to have uh, interviews with the people that work in the show, and there too it's an important part of developing an audience because they learn what it is to work in the theater from every angle, the stage manager, the house manager as well. And these seminars are, have become a very important part of our work because I think that in no other place do we have the kind of talent and the kind of knowledge that come to you in every one of our panels. I'm justly proud of them, and I'm justly proud of the people that work in the theater. I hope that you will enjoy them, and I hope that you also 
learn from them. I'm going to turn the seminar over right now to George White, who is a director and is head of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut. He's an international director, has come back from Russia and China, and is vastly knowledgeable in what it is to put on a show and how to direct it. And Brendan Gill, who is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing and is a critic, a lover of the theatre, and a writer in residence at New Yorker magazine. They will in turn introduce you to today's panel, which is on the production, the people that make it all come alive, the producing team of Moon Over Buffalo. Thank you very much for being here. I will begin by introducing uh, a member of a team, uh, one half of whom is on the other side of me and therefore remains a mystery guest until she is uh, identified by George White. We have here on my right Jeff Wilson of 101 Productions, uh, who works on, among other things, uh, and has worked on the music of Andre Lloyd Webber, currently handling Broadway Tony Award-winning musical Crazy for You. Other recent assignments include Buttons on Broadway, the national tour of Crazy for You, and an upcoming national tour of Carousel. And next to Jeff is Ruth Rosenberg of Sereno Coil, Coin Advertising Agency, currently handling Moon Over Buffalo. Other shows the agency handles include Cats, Crazy for You, Grease, and Having Our Say. And right next to me is Elizabeth Williams, uh, Tony and Olivier Awards winner with Crazy For You, represented by Crazy For You on Broadway in London's West End, Toronto, and Japan. Also, she produced The Secret Garden, Into the Woods, and The Gospel at Colonus, and co-produced Love Letters and Ruthless in L.A. Thank you. Uh, Brendan, I, I'm going to now go to my far left and introduce Adrian Brian Brown, who is one half of press press representatives, but no Brian Brown. As I said, it's the first time I've realized that Brian uh, uh, Brown is one person instead of two, um, who's currently <laughs> handling um, Moon Over Buffalo, and is also currently representing Beauty and the Beast, Company, Smokey Joe's Cafe, and Sunset Boulevard, just to name a few. Uh, and the mystery guest on his right, and in the middle here, is Wendy Orshin of 101 Productions, uh, uh, who met uh, Jeff Wilson, while they were working on um, the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber, and is currently uh, handles the Broadway Tony Award-winning musical Crazy for You, and recent assignments include Buttons on Broadway and the national tour of Crazy for You and the upcoming national tour of Carousel. And on my immediate left is the Tony and Drama Desk and Outer Critic Award-winning designer uh, of, uh, for Secret Garden uh, and uh, Big River, Heidi Landisman. She is also the co-producer of Secret Garden, Big River and Into the Woods, and is currently represented on Broadway by uh, Smokey Joe's Cafe uh, and developing a new uh, musical with Margot Lyon and also designed uh, Moon Over Buffalo. Too. So there we are, and uh, the, let's go. In, in our first couple of seminars uh, this fall, again and again, the question has come up of when a particular production begins, how long it takes and, and uh, the anguish concerned over many years. So my 
first question would always be in respect to the actual production, what was the very beginning of uh, Moon Over Buffalo? How many years ago did somebody have the first thought? Who knows best about that? Well, Elizabeth. Ken Ludwig, um, he was writing Moon Over Buffalo in 1993, and he sent it to me in the late fall, early spring of 93, 94. Mm -hmm. And we had our first reading of this um, hilariously funny play in June of 94. So um, it's, had, it's had quite a journey. Yeah. And then, uh, but, but uh, in the course of the meeting, is that was something else? Excuse me, Grace. Yes. We can't hear you. I'm sorry. You, you can't hear me? Is it working? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. We don't want to miss anything. <laughs> we, had, we, we had a discussion also in the past, and always do, about the question of readings. So when you had your first reading, was that in order to, for all of you to judge together in terms of what you were putting together, or was it mainly for backers? No. No, it, the, the, this first reading, we, um, I believe we already had our producing team together. I, it was yes. Heidi and um, Rocco Landisman, the, at least the lead producers, were already in place. And we felt fairly um, certain at the first reading, um, my, my, my um, story goes like this, that I was sitting in um, our home and my child came over to me and was very concerned because I was crying. But I was crying with laughter, and he had never he'd never seen me just weep, weep, weep. And I was reading Ken's play for the first time. It was in the early spring, I guess, of '94. Um, now, did you call Heidi and Rocco? Of what was your first uh -huh. step? Uh -huh. I, Wiping your eyes, right. <laughs> picking up the phone immediately and calling Ken, right. Ken, and telling him what a gloriously funny farce he had concocted, and with the same um, attention to structure and detail that is so typical of Ken. He's a great, great craftsman. And uh, I, I, I think a brilliant playwright really at the beginning of, of his career. He came to the theater um, late after a very successful career in law. And um, one, the first production that probably um, most of you know is Lend Me a Tenor. And subsequently, he wrote the book for Crazy for You, with which um, I was involved. So we became um, close friends on that production. And he has been sending me um, the things he's done subsequently. But this one felt, um, at the time, I think, Heidi, didn't we feel it was pretty well cooked? Yes, it felt very well cooked. It did. <laughs> uh huh. And so we t I went into Rocco, who, in whose offices I'm fortunate to have a cubbyhole, and um, gave Rocco the book. He loved it. Um, Heidi was right there at the same time um, because we collaborated on, on Heidi's Secret Garden and, and other projects previously. And we set up this reading, which was truly, we felt that it, at the time that it was to show us, um, it was with people who had performed before in some of Ken's productions and our productions, really a top level of, of actors. In fact, Philip Bosco was in that very first reading. And, um, and Jane Cannell. And Janie, that's Jane, right. And that's Jane Cannell, absolutely. What year was that? That was June of 1994. 
Well, that's exceptionally smooth sailing, according to the other tales that I've heard in my day. And also uh, open and friendly and, and, and easy in that respect. It was yes. a kind of a family beginning. It was. Well, it you was. Were going to say something about well, we all, you know, compared to doing a musical, which really can take a decade, this is extremely fast. But Elizabeth and I both thought, oh, it's a straight play. This will be a piece of cake. And in fact, it turned out to be a, you know, a fairly lengthy, elaborate, difficult process. Yeah. Yeah. But we you know, immediately began putting our team together. We put our great general managers here in place, Wendy and, and Jeff, and went to Serena Coyne and went to Adrian and put our dream management team together and then began thinking about who would be the, the, our dream team for the casting. So it, it did go quickly. But these were all friends and associates, colleagues that you trusted. Yes. So, so it's, it's a big yes. team already. You just start that way. Absolutely. Well, I think, and the family thing, I mean, obviously, Ken... Ludwig and Crazy for You. Did you have anything to do with Lend Me a Tenor, too? No, but, but it was because of Lend Me a Tenor that I went to Ken. Uh -huh. um, Roger and I went to Ken because, specifically because of what he'd done with Lend Me a Tenor to, to rewrite the book um, for Crazy for You. I had a, a, an interesting way, because it does seem like we are talking about a family here, which is often very rare, and it's not a team that has evolved over the years. And uh, I was saying, actually, before the show, how much I adored... Uh, Wendy's uh, set, and I realized that that seminar is later. Heidi's set. I know her sister Wendy too. That's mm -hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's confusing. Well, I'm well, well, all of these. Yeah. So it's okay <laughs> just for now. No, uh, but um, uh, you know, uh, Heidi, the the set was marvelous. How do you balance being? Uh, you know, I've heard of actor managers and all of this, but but uh, you know, whoever heard of a, a designer producer? And uh, doesn't that, don't you bump into yourself like a director does when you say, wait a minute, I can't afford to do that? Or do you ever say that? Or, well, <laughs> I, I, do. Thing, you know? I do. I have to rely on my, on my uh, general managers and, and fellow producers to beat me down when I become <laughs> extravagant and out of control. But um, in, in reality, though, um, I, I am much more um, cognizant of the producers spending money when I'm one of them than if I'm mm -hmm. a designer on my own. Designer on their own tend to try to get whatever they can get away with and spend as much money as they possibly can. <laughs> somebody must give you the budget even before you begin to design, surely. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, we also... Now, who when, does that? Well, when is, is, that, Jeff, is that what really? you do? Yeah. 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 After Elizabeth, then who goes into budget? Well, who do you... Well, Wendy and Jeff are oh. the, the... They put that budget together with based on the de producerial decisions about where we're going. You know, had we only come directly into Broadway, it would have been, have been a different kind of budget. But they, it's these two. It moves out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That it, who put that together. And where do you come into that? Mm. Where do you well, um, we were involved pretty early in this one. And it's tough when you have a, a play like this, which seems like a very simple eight-character play, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it's hard to, to kind of budget when you suddenly realize that it is a simple play, but it's not a simple set. It's a, a wonderful two-level set that starts out on stage. And um, Jane Cannell actually walks down through the set into this wonderful green room um, that's on a wagon. And, you know, suddenly it's expanding into something much bigger than sometimes you budget for. Um, Likewise, with the, the costumes, uh, Bob Mackey designed these incredibly wonderful uh, um, 1950s costumes that uh, 
when you first sit down and read the play, it's hard to envision it as a general manager. So we have to work really closely with the designers to determine, you know, just what that budget's going to be. And of course, then the first time you get the budget, all the producers look at it and have their heart attacks and say, you know, <laughs> and you do it again. Um, but it, 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 this was a really wonderful process in that respect. Um, everything Actually, you Heidi go was very helpful for us in this process because wearing both hats, so to speak, she set the tone for a lot of the departments because you were able to go to Heidi and say you're the set designer right now let's have this conversation and and talk about if you feel this drop is important where are we going to if we pay for that drop where do we make up that difference then you go to her as the producer and say, I have that conversation with you. Could you go speak to the sound designer for a moment? And um, so it, 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 it was a great collaboration in, in that sense. And she had um, incredible insight and experience. So normally, the set designer might not be involved as early in the budgeting process as we were. I mean, we did eight or nine budgets before we really had the budget that we were then going to go out and give to the producers to raise money. But Heidi was a part of that process all along, which really made it, it far easier um, for us and enabled us to still come in on budget and really realize everyone's vision and everybody's dream, including an out-of-town tryout, which is you know, often a very rare thing. Nowadays. Well, you know, that, that when you're budgeting, now, for instance, um, and this relates both to budgeting and the role of the producer, um, who had the marvelous idea to go after Carol Burnett? And, I, and, of course, that does affect the budget. And how early or how late did she commit to this? Elizabeth, it was your idea. Yes, I'm sure mm -hmm. it was. Um, I had worked with Carol previously in Love Letters in Los Angeles. I had um, co-produced Love Letters in Los Angeles with Joan Stein at the Cannon Theater, and it had run there for two, two years. And we um, were fortunate enough to have um, Carol, re I think she did it at least three times, maybe four, there at the Cannon uh, Theater. So I had, had met, met her, gotten to know her. And I was aware that she was very interested in coming back to Broadway. However, she was not, um, she became our dream team with, with Philip. But an, initially, obviously, to, to um, think of Carol Burnett and to think that the play that you love might be the vehicle that she would choose to come back to Broadway seemed a great a great act of hubris <laughs> that we, you know, it was more, a, it truly was more of a dream. And certainly this play um, was fully formed and was not written for her. Um, so, you know, we, sent, we did send it to her um, in the fall of 94. And Philip Bosco, of course, had been very interested in the role after having done the reading. And, and he'd done Lend Me a Tenor, too. And so he, he had won a Tony for Lend Me a Tenor. Now, so, what did Kent think about when you first said, we're going to try to get Carol Burnett? Because he had written a character whom, whom he must have described in the, in, 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 the, in the manuscript as being such and such and such and mm -hmm, such. Mm -hmm. And so was he surprised, startled, dismayed, happy? Um, intrigued. Yeah. Good word. Yeah. Good word. <laughs> and very diplomatic. <laughs> Intri intrigued. Because intrigued. that's part of the adjustment that goes on all the time, of course, in respect to a cast. But, but, and then Carol herself, uh, when she read the play, she was eager to come back. 
and she saw herself as being able to deal with that character as it was. So it was a joint thing, probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. She, she um, recounts having had a similar reaction to it that, to what I had. She, you know, just was weeping with laughter. And we very quickly got a call back from her manager and Bill Robinson, a lovely man, and he, he um, said, we really want to try to make this work. That's great. And we did. I'm interested also in the, in the process, because we we're talking about Serena Coyne, it's a wonderful uh, advertising theater, uh, advertising firm. Tell me about, I also particularly delight in the, in the artwork. Ah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I realize there's more to advertising and all of the planning, and I'd like mm -hmm. to get into that. But how did, who decided, did you come or, uh, to them with the concept? Did they, how does that work? Give yeah, us that I mean, we met, <clears throat> we met prior to, to presenting artwork with the producers. Um, we went away, we talked to our art department. Can I just interrupt once? Sure. Is the, does the agency have to audition in a sense or do you use the same people? If you say, yeah. it's Serena Cohen, that's the agency we're going to use. It depends. It depends. I mean, do, you sub do you submit budgets to the producer for? Um, in a way, I mean, we submit our, our ideal media plan. This is how we see you advertising this show. Mm -hmm. This is what we would like to do. I mean, it's always the dream, the dream list that always has to be cut back, um, just because that's the nature of Broadway. But um, it depends on the producers. It depends on the project. Sometimes we do uh, presentations for, for new accounts. Sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, it w they did do. A presentation. Yeah, it was a presentation. It was a presentation, and we were very impressed. Right, but of course, right off the bat, I mean, part of the family yeah. again. You, you know. Oh, sure. We everyone knows. I mean, it's a, it's a small little. Now, what was the first decision you made uh, from your point of view of uh, reading uh, the work itself? And, and uh, you had to come to a decision about what your angle of attack was going to be. So was what was it? Comedy. I mean, it's, yeah. it was fun. And the rarity of comedy. Yeah, the rarity of comedy on Broadway um, and something this, this knockabout knock funny. You know, it, it wasn't a serious, serious, uh, high-minded drama. Right. Um, it was just fun, pure fun. Right. And we thought um, about that the logo that we came up with, you know, we always try to train the public to, to associate like The Mask with Phantom, Cosette with Les Mis. Well, we were able to go kind of bypass that year of training that it takes by illustrating the title. It was just so perfect with the right. show. That's right, you don't have to speak English or anything. No, look at I mean, it. and Moon Over right. Buffalo. Moon Over Buffalo, <laughs> and once... Would you repeat that? It is. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, which, you know, so once you've established that, once people, the first time they see it and figure out that it's Moon Over Buffalo, that's done for you. Then you get other messages out. Who's in it? Um, when does it open? You know, what, what is yeah. it about? And it, so it, it becomes a little easier. Now you began in the fall of 94, too, I assume. Uh, a little later. A little later? Yeah. A little bit later. Yeah. And then what, when was the first time that you were able to do something vis-a-vis -vis the public? No, you know, it had to be before the... It must have been the fall of 94 that we it, met we with them. The initial the decision. Had because we didn't have the casting. A, yeah, I mean, our right. first ad was in April. Right. For the mail. Right. Order, so. Yes. But we thought we were going to go earlier than we ended up going. So yes. in fact, we started this process quite That's early. True. That's true. And then we end up spring. having to delay. There was a lot of juggling of schedules. Yes, yes. yes. endlessly. Adrian, once you once you um, uh, now the play, I, uh, you, I know you go through the pre-opening, and now it's uh, fortunately run and uh, is running, and you, it's it's a lot 
easy to sell. What what is the mental process as well as the physical process of of representing uh, a work? I, I think I mean we've sort of jumped ahead a little, but I think certainly at this point, um, it's to my job is to keep it as the consumer's number one choice to keep an awareness out there and a visibility of it out there. And obviously you interact with Serena. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think the whole marketing campaign is to, to just keep an awareness because what happens with a Broadway opening is there is an absolute deluge of information sent out to the public around the opening. And the real challenge then becomes how do you keep that pressure on so that you don't become a second choice, third choice, and so that consumers keep thinking, I must see that. Now, how do you do that? Um, but by a steady you know, pace of setting up interviews, um, coming up with ingenious stories about other members in the cast. I mean, obviously in this one, Carol Burnett is a very easy sell. Um, the media wants to talk to Carol Burnett. This is, you know, she's back after 30 years on Broadway. Um, but, but that, you know, there's, there's so much Carol can do. And also, we don't want to make it totally about Carol. We want people to come to see a good show, which has the bonus of Carol, if you like. Um, so, so really, it's just keeping the pressure on of hounding journalists um, to, to keep talking about it, to, to keep writing about it. So you keep the flood going. Yeah. I thought it was the first trickle. Well, when did, when did well, the first the, information come out to the public and the press or anything that was going to be Angel? Or? Right. What I think, I mean, going way back, as, as soon as the producing team finally had it together, um, knowing dates, knowing stars, um, it's a moment that never happens, but you hope that at one point all this information comes together so that you can just widely disseminate it. Um, we decided to have a press conference, which is pretty unusual. I mean, Broadway shows don't tend to do that anymore. Um, journalists like to receive information by fax. They don't need to come out to get information. But we figured that someone of Carol's caliber um, would warrant that attention. And what did you want to achieve with the press conference? Really, just telling everybody that Carol's coming back. But also by doing a press conference, you can have the whole team surrounding her so that you are, you're selling the show as well as Carol. Um, and I think that's been our constant um, mission, is, is to make sure that the show is sold as well as Carol. Now, where did you hold the press conference? Um, we got a deal in a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um, How did you start on, on out of town? What, what do you do there? Um, the... the, the this production was very unusual in that it's a commercial show which had an out-of-town tryout. I mean, the not-for-profit theater has done this a lot, but I, I can't think of many shows that have had you know, one out-of-town date and come in, um, especially a comedy. I mean, it's, it's pretty unusual. Um, this is great for the press agent because we are thinking down the road to Broadway and we have this sort of finite extended p period of when we can get materials ready, um, where we can do advance interviews. So the show went to Boston, and for us that was, as well as trying to sell tickets in Boston, that was a great opportunity to do work for New York. Um, so we started very early. I mean, how far out was Boston? I mean, it was when, you, when you looked at your budget, did, did you think Boston as well? Does that include out of town? Um, we had always known that we were going to go out of town. Um, I was fortunate, um, having worked on Crazy for You from the beginning with Elizabeth and Roger, we had had a Washington out-of-town tryout. So early on, 
we knew that it was a process that Elizabeth wholeheartedly believed in to allow the playwright and the company and, and really everyone the privacy away from the public glare to work on the piece and to protect the piece and to have the focus that we're all there at the same time as, as a company and as a family, as a group, working on it. So really from the first draft of, of the budget, uh, we didn't know at that moment it would be Boston, but we knew we would go somewhere. We worked very closely with Heidi, deciding what the city was, what the theater would be, so that Heidi was really focusing just on one design and, and, and one um, parameter. So we had always included that um, in, in our projections of, of what we needed to do. And, and then everyone else came along, the other producers, and, and agreed that that was the choice. And then we found Boston, and the theater worked for Heidi. And it was a market that Adrian felt um, was far enough away but close enough so that we could create an image and we could sell tickets. Uh, and we found John Platt. Well, now, what percentage? Excuse me. What what percentage of of, of the budget, uh, or how much greater is the cost of going out of town? You would think if amateurs would think, well, of course, go out of town. Everybody ought to be out of town. They used to be out of town in the old days. So, does this represent a, a cost ten percent greater than it would have been without going out of town, or less than ten? What is the well, we were, we were fortunate. Um, you go out of town really in, in two different forms. You either um, present yourself, as we did with Crazy For You at the, at the National Theater, um, and, you know, go for, for, in that case, I think we were there like five weeks. Um, in Boston, we were very lucky that we had a very savvy local presenter who helped us with our expenses with a guarantee, and we went there for a month. Um, so in our cases, uh, f for us, uh, with our budget, we said, you know, this would be a half a million dollars, roughly. It, it actually was a little bit more than that, um, for us to have this out-of-town experience with the help of the market and not really knowing what ticket sales would be. I mean, Adrian had, had done a lot of research for us in the summer. We were there in August. It's always difficult. Um, and at that point, when we were booked there, there had just been translations, and we thought we were going there at the same time as, as big, so there was going to be competition in, in the market. So it was an expense that, that we had budgeted along with the support of the local presenter, um, but we always knew that, that we were looking at close to half a million dollar investment, mm -hmm. but we were very lucky that we were very... Um, Supported the artistic was very supported by our producing team, and that was a cost that they decided in in a play budget had to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and we're very lucky. I mean, we went through wouldn't you say? I mean, massive changes. How did how did you uh, how did you make out just if if, if you don't mind um, uh, revealing this? How did you make out against the half a million dollar cost? Did you recoup some of that in Boston? How did you do vis-a-vis -vis that expense? Um, no, we haven't proved anything so far <laughs> at all. Um, we were very on target. Uh, we, we've been very fortunate with our budget overall that we've been very on, on target with it. Um, so it, it, um, ticket sales were uh, somewhat different than we had anticipated. Uh, we all knew what it was, and we all knew that it was funny, and it was wonderful, and, and the company was brilliant. But I think the, the uh, task of 
educating the public was slightly harder than we had anticipated in that short period of time. So we utilized all of the funds that we had put aside um, and then some actually for, for an out-of-town tryout. But it was an absolutely well worth um, I think, Adrian, you, you suddenly are used to working, I was thinking, uh, in, in New York. You're suddenly faced with a Boston promoting of, of this, which I imagine would be different, although uh, those contacts don't go away. But I would think uh, you, you'd have to switch. Nowadays, all of the, the old days, it was Bone of Variety and, and right, Elliot right. Norton uh, in, in Boston. That's all gone. So how did you have to deal no, with that? It's, it's, I mean, the, the reason for going out of town again with the goal of Broadway is to polish and develop the show as best you can and and, and I think that's what Wendy was alluding to the that the cost is a very worthwhile investment um, rather than having an extended preview period in New York where um, you're very visible in the fishbowl it's a chance to really develop stuff um, but with the communications these days um, we daily reports were coming in from Boston um, and it was being reported in the New York press. I mean, there is no way you can go anymore that that doesn't happen. Um, but I still think physically not being in New York does give you the chance to develop stuff. Who made that decision? Heidi, did you make that decision, or Elizabeth, or did you do it jointly? Or? I think altogether. I mean, I, uh, part of the decision is not only the, the, the physical space that I know the set is going to inhabit, but it's also what the experience is going to be like in each theater vis-a-vis -vis their house crews, uh, if they're cooperative, if they're going to make the production uh, period pleasant. And uh, it's very possible to, to research that pretty thoroughly. And some towns have a reputation of, of being really pretty terrible to work in, and other towns don't. And, and the Colonial uh, was one of those towns where you knew that you were going to go in and have a very calm, efficient, reasonable production period. And that's what it proved to be. The old days, the cast always used to stay at the Ritz. Is that still possible? Some of the costs. Well, they can't stay at the Taft in New Haven. No, that's right. Typical of general managers that they prepare the budget, and then do they also deal with the unions? How does the what's what's the role of general managers? Well, when you go to a a place out of town like in Boston. We had a local presenter who already had contracts in place with all of the different unions, so uh, it, it's really relatively painless. Um, you know what you're looking at up front. You know what it costs, uh, you know, to do your load in because you can figure out how many hours it's going to take, and you always hope it doesn't take more. Um, but it was. You, um, can you negotiate with with the union to say no? It wasn't that many hours. It was only. It was less. And how many of crew and all that is that? Well, it's it's not so much a negotiation as it is, um, you mean in terms of, of uh, hourly cost, rates? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just in general, I see what In general, it's not in your best interest to try to negotiate because the, the local presenter um, has already gotten the best deal he can get. He's now, the person who has to live there. What happens in New York? There. Is the same thing? Um, in New York, the League of American Theaters and Producers um, really is, is our negotiating arm mm -hmm. and, and um, so you know again those rates are, are pretty well set yes you, you always have something you want to argue about um, and can you individually do that for the show like, what, like what you can actually do is you can just really plan it extremely well so you never go into overtime you avoid all of those costs you uh, 
you as the designer don't design something that you know is going to mm -hmm. take forever to load in and be a technical nightmare. You just don't do it in the first mm -hmm. place. When there are, it's more about pre-planning. Um, I also have a wonderful uh, a production manager, P Peter Fulbright, that I've worked with for years. Mm -hmm. And he's marvelously efficient, and he's able to really plan out every day and every hour of a load in and load out, so you never get into waste, overtime, panic, all-nighters, any of those costs, which really can... I think you one of the most important things that you crucial. have to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, it's decision-making along the way, too. If you're in a situation where you may have to work a few more hours, you weigh that out against, you know, what if we stop now and we come back tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And that involves, you know, Peter Fulbright and the designers and us mm -hmm. and the local crew. And we all work together. It's, it, when it works, it's a really wonderful process. I meant to ask you, Heidi, earlier, because, again, one of the first decisions in terms of your design is which theater are you designing for? All the, all the prosceniums are, are of different widths and everything. Now, how early did you choose the theater that was coming to you in New York? Well, really early, and I had to because the design itself is based on the Martin Beck proscenium. Yeah. It's an echo of it. Um, and so it, it didn't make a lot of well, it made some sense in Boston, but it sort of didn't make entire sense in Boston. It made a lot more sense here. Made a lot more sense here. It to, to, to work perfectly at the Martin absolutely. Beck and to work well in Boston. Yes, I mean the Martin Beck. We, we the the uh, we did a lot of research and we took photographs and dimensions of the actual existing. At Martin what point Beck did proscenium. you do that, Heidi? Very early in the process. I think we knew we were going to the Beck when Elizabeth mm -hmm. early Almost early in the game. Uh, the, the, in it order was conceptualized really from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we knew we were going to go uh, in there. Of course, you and Tom Moore, the director, and Heidi, this would be maybe of interest, that sat down together with Ken's play, and part of the design element that Heidi came up with was inspired by um, Tom Moore and Ken and Heidi working together. That whole notion of beginning on the stage above the green room where the play takes place was... Um, well, that's it. that wasn't in the script to begin with. No, no, no. But also that meant, uh, yes, you play what must have been fairly expensive tricks with your designs, which is great fun for the audience yeah. to see these transformations. But then you also had to know that, this, that these mechanical tricks were going to work in Boston as well. I would think that would be terrifying. No, no because I, I work with you know, a wonderful team, and, and we just did a lot of research. We went down to Boston, we did our, our dimensionings. We knew we would fit. It was tight, certainly, but <laughs> well, we got it all in, and we were able to uh, experiment in the shop. So we, we really came in knowing mm -hmm. that, that all of this stuff would, would eventually work it, shake itself down, and we were able to stay pretty much on time and on schedule. Audiences love the, the kind of thing, those transformations, are totally unexpected. How is that possible that that's going to happen? <laughs> and it does. One of the reasons, actually, we made that choice is that um, I always said to, to Tom, most of the show does take place in a green room. And um, I know as an audience member... It's most I, theatrical. The whole it, thing. It's, it's very theatrical. Really it needs to be. Wonderful theater. But I, but I found certainly sitting as an audience member, if I sit in the seat and the curtain goes up and there is a box set sitting there, and I know I will be there all evening, my heart sinks. <laughs> I go, oh, God. And it's very depressing. So I thought it was essential to sort of build in a kind of exciting theatricality at the beginning of the, the evening so the audience would really be captured and intrigued from the top. The opposite of that would be the heiress, where in point of fact you see that great Washington Square parlor 
and you want to be a part of it. It's a, it becomes a living room in your own mind, mm -hmm. where any change in that set would have been quite distressing, I think. It's actually want to but be asked to tea. Yeah, it's the opposite kind of play. <laughs> right, uh, and, right. And, and, and you're not going to do much knock about comedy in, in uh, Washington <laughs> no, Square. No. What about the doors? Was that seen as, as the beginning? Of, of oh, yes, you know, with any farce, um, the ground plan becomes absolutely critical. The number of, I mean, it's, the it's, doors, it's doors. The, the number of doors, where the they door are, jams. the door jams. And I think we probably went through about uh, 15 different ground plans with Tom, just over and over again to get the real precision layout of, of how exactly each door was located and how long it took to get from one to another. And because it's all about split-second timing. Hotel Paradiso. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Drake Edwards depended on that last night uh, for, for his and play, too. Yeah. It didn't have anything to do with the play, but it was wonderful to watch <laughs> it. <laughs> How much did, did your author change as you went along? And, and, and uh, how did that work into your script? A great deal was changed in Boston, mm -hmm. which is exactly And the playwright there. did the changes? Absolutely. The playwright was there, mm -hmm. as, as were we, for that entire month. Mm -hmm. And um, great change was made to the first act of the play. Uh, much, you know, much to all of our, our great pleasure. Mm -hmm. But it was a it was a very rigorous <laughs> process, and one that we could not have done in any way no. in New York. I was going to say any other venue. I mean, like a regional mm -hmm. theater probably wouldn't have worked because you needed, I guess, the intensity of an out of town, literally an out of town try as opposed to maybe. Well, Everyone's there together. Also, you know, the, the other thing is, is that. Especially for a farce like this, you need the right cast. It's it's precision casting. I think to do it out of town at a regional theater, with with the regional theater cast, would not give you really that much information about the play. Mm -hmm. it, it's absolutely crucial to get the real, mm -hmm. the real top level, top notch far farceurs doing it. And I imagine if you're if you're in a, if you're in a let's let's say a preview situation in New York, you can't take it off. And just leave it, and then go back and redo it. Now, if you're stuck in a theater in New York, you have to open after you previewed. I assume. I would That's imagine it would bring a great sense of panic to have mm -hmm. to do what we did under the heavy glare of New York um, theater audiences. That would be another farce altogether. I was just going to say, Ken did a really wonderful thing one night in Boston, where um, he just picked a night at random, and we invited the audience to stay afterwards and talk to him. And um, rather than have the audience just asking questions of the playwright, you know, kind of question and answer thing, Ken stood up on stage and asked questions to the audience. And, such um, as? Wonderful. Well, such as, you know, were you confused when, you know, so-and-so came into the room? And it, it was the most wonderful thing, because somebody on one side of the theater would stand up and say, yeah, that, that really confused me. And somebody on the other side of the audience would stand up and say, are you crazy? That was the best part of the whole play. <laughs> and, and through that, um, uh, one of the things I think that came out was that the audience really wanted to know more about the family relationship of Carol's character mm -hmm. and Phil's character and um, Roz, who's played by Randy Graff. And, and Ken took that away and came back a couple of days later with some marvelous scenes mm -hmm. that, that really developed and established that relationship. That's very important. W was the Patton, uh, General Patton suit, I've got to ask this, it has yeah. no idea. Was that in, was that, uh, in the very, was that in that there for me? Because when I, when, I, when I knew that was set up, and I know Ludwig's work, I said, 
Where is he going to go? <laughs> I have no idea, but I know it's going to come up and bite us somewhere. But I couldn't. No, no. No, it's like clockwork. You know, he yeah. he sets it up. That's, and when you know, lawyer background maybe. Yes. Yeah. He's that's a what Forrest depends upon that, of course, and, and planting as many clues without the audience knowing it, and then having them all go boo boo. Planting that initial budget. How often did you change it and adjust it? Daily. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And at each, at each point, did it come back into your hands, to your decision and Heidi's, uh, as producers, of whether the one, that could be accepted or that could be cut out? The one thing that, that um, those of us in the theater learn as we go along is that you have, a, you have an ideal figure that you, you posit, mm -hmm. a learned figure that you posit for the amount of money you want to spend. And then you allocate that to the different departments. And you know that, that say, a quarter of your budget will go for advertising, a quarter of your budget will, you, it, you can break it down into chunks. That's very important. I'd love to hear how you break down that 100% in the same. Yeah, let's, the, could you do you that? You would like to go yeah, through yeah. that? Can mm, you do that? Sure. Okay. Well, we, um, we came up with a Physical total. production. We came up with a total figure of, uh, what we felt, what uh, you know, the producers felt comfortable with, with capitalizing the show at what was um, two million four, and uh, we then, interestingly enough, the the one finite thing we knew in the beginning was we were going to go out of town, and we had done research, and out of town not only meant per diems and transportation and. Um, extra hauling of things going back and forth. So we came up with, with that figure, the half a million dollars. How much is it to go out of town per, per diem and things like that? And, uh, well, uh, every everybody's per diem is different, oh, but the actors right. the yeah. actors get their actors' equity $630 a week, and the stagehands um, got their money, and then you negotiate with the creative team, and they get theirs. And uh, So it's each person is, is different um, in a sense. Um, we then knew that we were going to be advertising in two different places, so we worked very closely with Serena Coyne on, on figuring out, okay, we want like $350,000 for a New York presence, which was the figure that really never, uh, well, it was never the figure that, that Serena had, had thought of in the beginning, but we thought about it. Um, so they sort of fine-tuned that. Um, and then, I interestingly enough, the, the physical production was the thing that fluctuated the most on, on this show. Um, the wonderful intensity of going out of town where the play is everyone's primary concern. You're not distracted in New York with your own personal home life or going to the theater or running errands. You go from the hotel, which our director absolutely loved, from the hotel to the theater, from the theater to the hotel. Um, every once in a while a food stop, you know, was in between. <laughs> but otherwise that was the focus. So really the physical production evolved to a great degree why we were out of town. And, and that really changed. And what we ended up doing, we had a very healthy reserve always, a reserve for out of town and a reserve for New York. How much was that? Um, About 400000 400000 for both places. Um, and what we ended up doing, um, because we had such a five years of a relationship with Elizabeth already on Crazy For You, there wasn't the daily checking in of, we spent $10 extra here, we spent $15 here. We just really came, kept her abreast. And the way ticket sales were going, we knew we could dip into the reserve a little bit more to uh, compensate for um, 
a new costume or extra sound effects or changing lighting. Um, never seen a rave was always exactly what it was supposed to be from the beginning. Uh, so that's really how we kept on moving things around. We, we didn't go over budget. We never went over the 2-4, which is what we, we raised, but we dipped into the reserve for those extraordinary things that, um, you know, your fear is you walk in in the morning and they go, there's a new scene, and a new scene means different scenery, different props, different costumes, different sound effects, and we had that quite a bit, but luckily, um, you know, I'd spent seven years working for Tyler Gatchel, and, and so had Jeff, so we were well prepared to know that those were the unexpected things that were going to happen, and we were lucky enough to have a good, healthy reserve that, that brought us through that time period. Well, now, you have, a, uh, you have budgeted at uh, 2.4 million, and that everybody decides to do that. Then the producers are there with 2.4 million to raise. Now, how do you do that? Do you do you have a, a cadre of people that have always been with you, or and if you take us again through that, because you also have partnership, I guess, with theater owners and mm -hmm. uh, again. The um, the, lead, uh, the lead producers were um, myself and Heidi and Rocco Landisman, and then our other partners in the production were DLT Entertainment and Hal Luftig, and we those were all the what are called the above title producers, and we three were the general partners Heidi and Rocco and I, and we divvied up the money um, according to. Uh, wasn't really dividing it down the middle, but you you do it according to your ability to raise that money, to put that money forward, and you get a share of the um, the profit points accordingly. Um, and you have your friends. Mm -hmm. I have my cadre of investors to whom right. I've always gone and who to whom I went with this project, as does Heidi and Rocco, ha as the theater owner as well as one of the producers, um, has you know has. Um, does your record enter into this when, when you go to this cadre of, of producers that you have on top? Mm -hmm. The fact of what you've produced before and how, how you've handled the monies of that before, how successful it was? Does that enter into going you back and asking, well, now come into this production? Absolutely. You Not don't have to, to reach say, out crazy each for time. you happens to be a little success along the way. <laughs> <laughs> This was also what's called a private placement, which means that we did it with 35 and under investors. That's wonderful. And in fact, we came, didn't come anywhere near that, that number. We were well under. Well, 35, the reason of that private placement, as, as I understand it, I thought it used to be 23, wasn't it? Where after 35, you have to file with the SEC you and, and you have all kinds of complicated legal machinations. You have to do a full-blown regulation D or whatever kind mm -hmm. of a registration with the SEC and with the Attorney General. And in this instance, we had a small number of investors um, who took large, um, large increments of that of that um, These investors, did you workshop it for them or did you no. just... No, we did not. We, we um, in fact, they didn't... Mm, I know that Hal Luftig came to be reading and um, I don't believe that anyone else who was an investor did anything other than read it and hear, um, hear our cast and our producing team and, and decide on the merits of, of um, their own ability to read and, and understand who was involved with the production. But you yourself, uh, 
at some level, do you attempt to gauge when, if everything goes well and you have your maximum return weekly and all that, because it's a hit, uh, that you can tell the investors uh, it may well be that 100% will be returned by the following June, or don't you try to make... We, we do. We do, absolutely. So we have a target in your own minds about when this investment is going to be recaptured and all that. I need to know the percentage of the advertising and, and uh, the merchandising, the marketing of it. Uh, and publicity, how does that come in? What percentage of the budget goes to Adrian? And what percentage goes to you? If you <laughs> Just roughly, you get the picture. It's, it's, it's very much fixed rates that the general managers can <coughs> pretty much determine. Um, you know, once the advertising sort of strategy has been mapped out, as Ruth can tell you, it's, it's very, you, you know there is a certain amount of weekly budget, and it varies for every show. Um, and the, the press agent's fee is similar. There's you know, salary and expenses. Um, so I, I don't know what, what percentage of his marketing... Any way of... Uh, of the uh, in your budget? Advertising. Of the, of the two million four, yeah, let's say, how much is put aside? I, a rule of thumb for me and for, for the productions I'm involved in is that usually a quarter to a third is for the physical, physical mm -hmm. production. That means all elements of it. Another quarter is for fees, all the management fees and all the, the other administrative costs. Another quarter is for the advertising and, and, and um, marketing. And then another quarter for the reserve. So, uh, you know, the very clear picture. To go back to our beginning question, the one person we've left out is how early on did you decide on Tom Moore for a director? How, and habitually or in practice, ordinarily, isn't the director one of the first people that you have to consider? Yes, yes, and, indeed. And the in director. this case, what happened? Brendan, I'm sorry. We're gonna, I have to interrupt you once more. And it, we're going to just stand up for a minute and stretch and come right back again and answer more questions. I think we've arrived at a very important part of this. This is now decision-making on the creative end of it. And so if uh, you would please just stand up. Everybody, come back to their seats just as quickly as you can, and we'll continue this discussion and moon over Buffalo. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing our discussion on what it is to work in the theater. And this has been the most wonderful and enlightening and important one because it's the production team of Moon Over Buffalo. And we've talked about and talked with both the performer, the playwrights, the directors, and the choreographers. And now we are into the nitty-gritty of how they all came together to be part of the production that you see when you go to the theater. So without any ado, we're going to go back to the American Theater Wing seminar on the production of Moon Over Buffalo. Would you start? We, we were just about to find out when it was that you decided on the director, which we assume is also one of the very earliest things you have to do, since he's going to help you shape not only the cast, but the, but the nature of how everything progresses. When did you choose Tom Moore to be your director? And who did it? <laughs> It was, a, it was a joint decision, I would say. I'd worked with Tom as a designer, although on, um, I'd done check-off with him 
and we did a production of Night Mother that won the Pulitzer Prize, Marsha Norman's play. So my experience with him had not been as a director of comedy or farce at all. <laughs> this is heavy stuff. But I, I, I knew, I've, I've known him forever, and I know that he has a, has a background in farce, and in fact is, is quite a student of classical farces, and had done an enormous amount of, of Fado. And, um, and he's an enormously skilled director, and having worked with him before on a new play, I also knew that he was a very effective dramaturg in terms of his ability to work with a playwright. So I think we sort of jointly we were arrived. We the very short list of people that can that have have any kind of track record or can um, direct farce is mm -hmm. <laughs> very, very short. Two names. Very short. Yes, he does. No. And had been away from the theater for a long time. I did not know Tom, and Ken did not know Tom. Um, and um, Heidi and Rocco very strongly recommended him, and we were very impressed with his credentials. Mm -hmm. And Ken met with him, and they had a wonderful dinner together discussing the structure of Once in a Lifetime and... Um, the front page and Fado and you know they shared a great love of just right. how all those characters and the plot um, work together and they that that was the beginning. So in a sense, you're both playing, playing marriage brokers a little bit mm. yes. in terms of that, mm. yes. Yes. Getting mm -hmm. who's going to dance with whom. Yes, you know. yes. Yeah, that's good. Yes. I wanted to get into uh, Elizabeth. Your background is as a as a uh, uh, how you came to be a producer because uh, that that fast, I know you're. Your original training was in archaeology, and then did you start digging up scripts? I'm sorry. Some people say Crazy for You was a revival, but I think it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but tell us about your, you know, background. Yeah. Um, how to do this in a nutshell? Um, I, I, I was teaching at, um, I guess, Berkeley when an old acquaintance of mine from undergraduate school came to me and asked me to sit on the board of some art investment funds that a big insurance company was forming at the time. This was in the early 80s, and um, that was a period in <laughs> our economic history, as you may remember, um, in which all of these big companies were going into all kinds of what would now be considered, um, I shouldn't say this, <laughs> Very risky, risky investments that they thought were, um, uh, shall we say, plums to lure different investors in into their. Um, like what? I mean, like, like art funds, theater funds, mm -hmm. movie funds. They did better with art than anything else, I think. Don't you? They did, right. and and actually there were some terribly successful movie funds, mm -hmm. but that was because of the blind. Pool, their ability to form blind pools, which is only something recently that we're able to exploit in the theater, mm -hmm. as you know. I don't know what it is. Um, it's a pool in which you don't... I wouldn't jump into a blind pool. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to designate the properties. Oh, I see. You can raise money based on the credentials of the people who are involved and then, then later let your right. investors know what the properties are. Oh, Silver Screen Partners was a blind pool mm -hmm. that then you know, was hooked up with Disney. But you were very young. You were just beginning mm -hmm. uh, to, to be as in, in the teaching world, your mm -hmm. professional world, mm -hmm. and suddenly you were involved with were you teaching archaeology, teaching Egyptian and Mesopotamian archaeology and art history. What a way to begin on Broadway! <laughs> <laughs> I blame it on mythology. Uh, I see. We're creating different kinds of myth on Broadway. Um, 
So, so at any rate, they, they came to me about art investment funds and were thinking of forming theater funds. And once they began meeting with independent producers and saying, we have corporate funds for you um, with no strings attached, obviously many independent, influential independent producers began to send them projects. And b because I suppose I was an academic and they assumed I was you know, I had some sense of some, some judgment. <laughs> they began to send me projects to, to vet while I was teaching in California. And among those early projects was the, um, the French version of um, the Robert Hossin version of Les Miserables that Cameron McIntosh had gotten the rights to, to do at the RSC with the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. And um, I became very excited about this project being an academic and being a French major in undergraduate school for many reasons. And at any rate, the company ended up doing this project. I ended up working in the summertime for this company and um, ending up becoming involving in fu involved in fundraising and finance. And went ahead to work with them in financing um, Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon and many of Cameron McIntosh's. Oh, that's shows. a heartbreaking story. <laughs> 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 what, what, what a thing to be able very, to do. Very, um, uh, very now, fortunate. Eastern insurance companies uh, go into the theater here? Do any of our big names in New York, have they ever invested or in Or Hartford. Or Hartford. Have they ever invested in, in uh, the theater? Well, this was Mutual Benefit Life Insurance Company. So it is here and everywhere. Mm -hmm. I and, didn't realize that they had ever gone into that. And Mutual Benefit, their, their financial service company, um, became involved with, with these limited partnerships in each of these different areas. But not anymore? Or no, anymore. no. In fact, that company no longer exists. But these were, <laughs> these, were, <laughs> these were very, very, very profitable. Very, yeah. very profitable. Oh, it's obviously. a sensational list of things to be involved with. And then when did you sort of go on your own? Well, actually, Heidi, Heidi had a lot to do with that. I, I was working you know, in this office where we were doing finance, but coming from the academic world, and, um, and my interests were obviously less in, in the business area, that, although I benefited greatly from that, but in the, crea in the creative. So I was very interested in becoming involved in the creative. And this company for whom I worked at the time, Mutual Benefit Productions, Fifth Avenue Productions, um, became involved with Into the Woods with Rocco and Heidi. And Heidi, um, in the course of that, that involved me in the process of you know, going to ad meetings and other things. And um, so she mentored me. <laughs> and then subsequently we did Secret Garden together and the work with the Dodgers on the Gospel at Kelowna. So now, did you come to New York from Berkeley at the very beginning? Or how? Actually, I, by the time I, I had gone from Berkeley to UCLA and then back to New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about being a, a general manager? How do you start doing that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you come from? That's, that's the yeah. first step. Well, we, we came from very different backgrounds. My theatrical career started in Florida, where I worked for Zeb Buffman uh, as a local presenter. I, I managed the Broadway series in Tampa. And um, I, I kind of fell into it from there. I mean, the, the company was bought out by Pace Theatrical Group. And I ended up going on the road. And I toured for a number of years. I was on the road with. South Pacific with Robert Goulet, uh, Fiddler on the Roof with Topol. Um, that brought me into New York, and then I went out on the road with the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber, which was a wonderful two and a half years of 
you know, every city in America and Doing several what? countries. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I was on the road as a company manager. Um, mm -hmm. Now what's who, the difference between a company manager and general manager? Well, the company manager reports directly to the general manager and is really responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of, especially when you're on tour, of getting the cast from city to city, making sure they all have hotel rooms, making sure they all get paid, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that the show gets paid by the local presenter and, you know, keeping an eye on the advertising and all of those kind of things. Um, Wendy at the time was working uh, in New York for Gatchel and Neufeld. You want to tell your, and, your side um, of the story? But how did you get the job with well, Tyler well, and Peter? Basically, um, I had been at the uh, Weisler office for five years. I had been Alicia Parker's assistant and um, saw Tyler, interestingly enough, normally right around midnight we'd leave the building at the same time <laughs> and I'd see this man with all these file folders always in the elevator and we started chatting and, and developed a relationship and a friendship and when there was an opening um, at Gatchel and Neufeld I got an interview with uh, Peter and Tyler and ended up, um, I was Tyler's assistant for um, seven years and worked very closely on putting together the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber with Sarah Brightman, Michael Crawford, we did the whole amphitheater tour um, with Jeff and then um, worked from the beginning on Crazy For You with Elizabeth and Roger as Tyler's assistant and when um, Tyler uh, tragically passed away um, in July uh, after Peter made the decisions to you know do other things under wonderful things with his life um, don't even know how but somehow I said to Jeff and Jeff said to me well, hey, let's go put on a show together. <laughs> and I was Judy Garland, and he was Mickey Rooney. And, you know, with Elizabeth and um, Elizabeth and Roger's incredible support of um, asking me to general manage Crazy For You and, and their support in opening up an office, um, we were fortunate enough, Jeff and I, we opened our own company, 101 Productions Limited, and we were blessed that Rocco and Paul Livin gave us a fabulous cubby home on that great floor. And we, um, we opened up our office, and we were very, very lucky that we could open our office with a fabulous show like Crazy For You, and um, could set up an independent general manager's office, and we've worked at the Shakespeare Festival, we, we did a tour down in Florida for Pace Theatrical of Grand Night for Singing, and Red Buttons, One Man Show, so we were very fortunate. We've had our company about a year and a half. I don't um, think to work as partners in I don't this think way. either of us and probably nobody I know sort of goes into this business thinking I'm going to be a general manager but it just happened for us and and it's been it it's have been to a be wonderful a, a ride. step by step in order to have the knowledge of, 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 of the theater and the production to be a general well, manager. Well, there's no school or course for general no, managers. You can't do it without a background in every aspect. I mean, mm. we've both worked in well, what, all what every areas. aspect? I mean, you need a background Oh, backstage. Um, How about law? <laughs> well, I certainly don't have a law background. You, you, you work very closely um, with the with the experts that a team gets put together. Um, I, I learned, um, I mean, working for someone like Tyler, you, you, Tyler was the best in, in, in the business and, you know, always will be because he knew everything. He could have a conversation with a designer, with a director, uh, with a playwright. Um, 
there were times that Ken would, you know, ask me, uh, doesn't that remind you of da-da-da? And I'd sort of sit there and go, da-da-da-da, I should know what that is, and I don't. But, but someone like Tyler was, was able to. So I was so fortunate, having been his assistant and working so closely with him, that I, I knew the pieces of what needed mm -hmm. to necessarily happen. Um, I had not necessarily gone through them on my own. Um, and working in, in the relationship that Jeff and I do, we are very unique in, in the fact that we are partners and we work on each show together. And we were just fortunate enough that Elizabeth, when Moon Over Buffalo came along and, and Ken had the uh, faith and the insight to feel that we could meet this challenge and, and we could take this on. Do you work with, um, with one production at a time, more than uh, just one production at a time? We do. Um, we, we have a wonderful office staff um, that enables us and gives us the support to be able to, to juggle two or three shows um, at a time. And the economics of the industry that we work in, unfortunately, you, you need to um, just to survive. And, and the, more, the more people you work on and the more shows you work on, the better equipped you are each time. I, I was able to know certain things about Moon Over Buffalo because I had gone through aspects of Love or Starlight Express or Joseph or the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. The more experiences you have, the better prepared you are to, um, to know and to be able to troubleshoot, which really is your job as the general manager. You're the support for everyone on that show. And you need to troubleshoot for them so they can go off and create and they don't have to worry. You need to have budgeting expertise so that Elizabeth's never put in a precarious position of calling up and saying, you know, well, we ran out of money yesterday. You know, you have to protect everyone. That's what your job is. So the more often you have those experiences and the different people you work with, the better prepared you are. But then the choice of a general manager is very important uh, to the producer. Is that so? Is there, are the fees the same for all general managers then? Is there a standard fee or do you then, do you also negotiate or with I think there's a union, isn't there? Or is there a standard no. fee for general managers for Press whether it's a managers, straight Press play agents or a yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an industry standard. <laughs> uh -huh. Because there are very few general managers working in this, in this industry. Now, do you also keep a lawyer, uh, yes. like counsel? Uh, yes, Sidney Fe Feinberg of, of uh, Labor Rose and Swaggy Hyman. Mm -hmm. how, how about getting into press? How do you do that? Well, you get a degree in biology. <laughs> <laughs> or archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. So you're always joking, say so you're dealing with animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you say? No, buffaloes. Yeah. Buffaloes, right. Yeah, sure. Or amphibians, um, whatever they no, are. I, I, again, I, I think like, like general managers, there's no, there's no calling to be a press agent. Um, and I think... A lot of press agents have been actors, um, a lot have been writers, a lot have been directors. Um, my, I fell into it with a complete fascination with the media. I mean, as a kid, I was always told to stop reading magazines and stop watching TV, and I finally could not justify that. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I, I totally fell into it. I was very lucky having early experiences of just looking for a job in New York and wanting to work somehow in the theater, of working with Susan Block, who was... Mm -hmm. A wonderful lady who in the 60s did um, the press at Lincoln Center, the first time with Jules Irving when it was first set up. And so I had a great introduction, and I just kept at it and just enjoyed it more and more. But um, I think there's, l like the manager's role, um, we act as a clearinghouse for the production. A lot of information flows through us, and I think that's what we have to keep, keep up and keep doing. We just have to keep the information flowing 
um, to the media, to the company, and that is a really our primary role. How do you develop the, I mean, I know obviously if you have a Carol Burnett or, or something, you can make an entree to the, to the press, but how do you develop, let's say you don't have, you have no stars, you have an unknown playwright, how do you make, the, I mean, and you were starting as a press agent, how do you make that uh, approach to, let's say, the, the major newspapers, let alone the, you know, the Today Show or something like that? Right. It's, it's, you know, obviously it's, it's much harder with an unknown play by an unknown playwright. Um, but there's also, there has to be a reason for producing it. I mean, th those things don't get produced. I know that sounds like fish and um, chicken and egg, no. but, 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 you know, th it's very rare that you get something like that. There is a reason for producing something. A producer believes there'll be an audience for it. The playwright believes there'll be an audience. So it's our, it's our job to find the sellable points. Um, you know, is there some aspect of the play that is intriguing? Is it very topical? Is it very controversial? So you may not have the easy celebrity, but it's our job to find those selling points that are buried in there. And it's hard to be specific. I mean, if you, if you no, name I'm a show, you can say what it is. But I think things that have no intrinsic interest, by definition, don't get produced. So it's, it sort of solves itself. Uh -huh. Does the Times have more... Uh, coverage now of television and, and uh, movies by far than the legitimate theater or not? I, I, I think that the Times, um, I think there's been a softening of all coverage in the Times. There is less Certainly hard news. In terms of news. Yes, of uh, uh, but across the board, and I think that's affected um, the movie advertising the must be so system. advantageous. He's enormous, full page. Right. As now, the theater could never try to Right, Catch you, can you? Um, but I, I think they they have cut back on editorial. You notice that they run smaller reviews now. They they combine the reviews. Um, I st I still think the Times does do a lot of coverage. I mean, they're still maintaining a Sunday critic. Um, they still run features every Sunday. There is much less daily coverage. Um, there used to be features almost daily on the theatre, and that yeah. happens less. Um, so I think it's it's purely a reaction to the amount of advertising being carried. Really? There is, is, less there, is there any way of, of establishing critics coming in opening night and coming back to that uh, routine of, of reviewing the show on opening night? Or if they review it a day or two before, to have them hold their reviews so that word of mouth can have time to get established? It, it, it's, it, everything that you do is to sell tickets, and right. then it all depends on that one review the following morning. Well, if, if we've done our job with the whole marketing team, um, the review shouldn't matter. I mean, if they're good, they should be gravy and help the production. If they're bad, we should have such momentum from public interest and word of mouth that they don't affect the sales. Um, I think now that we've all, we've all learned how to strategize an opening, we know that the critics have to come a couple of days early, so we've decided which night is the best night to open. Um, and I think actors actually like the idea of not having all the critics coming on one night. Um, that, that used to put extraordinary pressure on that one performance, and now they're spread out, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Some of the people the yesterday other. felt the opposite. That's right. That, that they said that we'd rather get keyed up, get up to, for that. to yeah. the, the adrenaline going for that one thing. As long as it's a good performance. Uh, <laughs> but the advance, I, I was wondering about that. The stories in the press were uh, that to the effect that, uh, for example, Victor, Victoria has an advance of $15 million. Now, largely, it's going to get bad reviews, probably. I suspect it will. So uh, at least a couple that I've seen are bad reviews. So is that $15 million, to the extent that it's real, can that melt away all by itself? The reviews aren't going to affect that? Well, it, it, it can, but 
it, as long as the show maintains its word of mouth, as, I mean, which is ultimately what matters. I mean, critics, I think, are just big word of mouth. And their effect diminishes. A week later, they're, they're chip paper. You know, I mean, yeah. you wrap them. <laughs> we're going to go to questions right. now. And, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we're going to get from you. But right now, we have some questions here. What would you like? Uh, my name is Yvonne Romer, and I'm an administrative intern at the Juilliard School in the Drama Division. And I'm interested in theater management and administration right now. <laughs> and um, I was wondering, the, sh the production, um, is, it seems to me, from listening to you, has run very smoothly. And I was wondering what if, um, say, for example, Carol Burnett was hurt and she wasn't able to perform, what would, do you have any type of, what is your backup plan for situations like that? Or if she had said no to the, to the production in the first place, would you have gone ahead with the project, or how would you have proceeded with that? That's a lot to answer. Who wants to take that on? Second question first. <laughs> yeah, second question. Oh, well, second question. Of course we would have continued on with the show. I mean, she's marvelous, and we're ecstatic about her, but... There are other comic actresses in the world, and I'm sure we could have found another one. I mean, the play really stands on its own two feet, I think, admirably. Um, if she's injured, I mean, it actually happened. Uh, uh, well, not well. She just had a, a, a leg brace on. It's true. Um, she we did have, play. we have a yeah. She played. We have a wonderful understudy, cadre of understudies. That we're very blessed to have an understudy who has major credentials in her own right, Janie Seltz. Yes, mm. wonderful. Yes. She, yes. yes. Thank so you. Hello, my name is Joseph Corey, and I'm a sound engineer intern at the Juilliard School. Um, we've spoken about Heidi has been involved in the production process as a set designer. How involved is the sound designer in the process, particularly in a farce such as Moon Over Buffalo, rather than a musical? Well, certainly less so in Moon than a musical, because you're not dealing with the, the orchestra problem. Uh, but uh, Tony Miola did our sound, and he's, I've worked with him on a lot of shows, and he's extraordinarily good. And uh, he was involved from the very beginning in terms of uh, what sort of sound reinforcement we needed and what were the sound effects and music. There's a lot of music in the show, in fact, um, incidental music. And uh, he was a critical and early part of the collaboration. That's part of the definition when you said he's very good. What, what does that mean? You, you don't know. Yeah. To me, it's you don't know there's any sound reinforcement at all. That's my definition of good. Mm -hmm. And I think he really accomplishes that. You have no idea that anything is ever turned on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like natural sound. We have time for just one more question. Would you? Hi. I'm a Diane Snyder with Backstage Newspaper, and I just wanted to know, in the press, there had been a lot of word about how the Carol Burnett role was beefed up after she had been signed to, to do the show. How do you as producers convince a playwright to rewrite the show now that you have this star signed, and is there, is there ever any bad feeling there? I, I think I'd almost ask you where that question comes from. Because certainly, the, it, the, it, in a way, you're putting the buggy before the horse or the horse, whatever that expression is. Because Carol came on board um, with a play that we all loved, that we felt was very strong. Now, when we got to Boston and it began to play, we began to realize that the first act needed work. Can primary among us. Now, the question is, was that first act always going to have needed work, or did it... Uh, 
become more apparent because we had someone in that role of the star power of Carol. I think it was a combination of both. I think that she has so many skills and so many um, talents as a, as a comedian and as an actress that we wanted to, that the playwright and the, the rest of the creative team wanted to provide her with a broad platform for that. I think as well it became apparent that to, to, to the creative team as it played in Boston that in fact that the first act did need work, that the, that the Charlotte character and the interrelationships in the family that we discussed earlier needed a bit more setting up. So can, you know, attack, <clears throat> attack that with alacrity, you know, with great zest and, and um, it became, you know, very different on, on, on that level. Thank you. One quick question to everyone, ticket prices. Are you offering any packages? Are you, do you have any student rush tickets? Any way of bringing down the ticket price or making tickets more available to more people? Could you answer that quickly? Um, we did a, a direct mail early on. We, we opened at a unique time uh, in September, you know, with, with many holidays and people coming back from school. We also, um, when we have ticket availability, we go to the uh, TKTS booth. And we were fortunate to have TDF subsidize us, so we had TDF tickets available in the beginning also. Thank you very much. And there is much, much more to be asked, much more to be said on this wonderful production team that's here today on Moon Over Buffalo. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and it is just one more of the American Theatre Wing's programs and working in the theater. Thank you very much for being here, and thank you, production team, for coming and sharing all this wonderful knowledge with us.